you tell your troubles to They don't really care for you Come and tell me what you're thinking Cause just when the boat is sinking A little light is... Hello and welcome to the 13th episode of Midnight Film Review. My name is Brian Stevens and with me as always... Is Colin Smith and we got emails! What? Did hell freeze over? It happened. We have proof that other human beings, or at least very uh, like advanced and sentient AI <laughs> <laughs> internet bots, have uh, managed to respond to us. Yeah, maybe maybe this came from uh, another planet. No, it's so. Remember, we have like robots downloading our oh, podcast, right, yeah. and yeah, so the the Indian <laughs> podcast <laughs> bots <laughs> have gone. Uh, Podcast listening bots have gone sentient. Step, step one towards Skynet. <laughs> it's kind of like that uh, that Will Smith movie, iRobot. It's a classic. Way to just like deflate me <laughs> with one, one, one fell swoop. Uh, yeah. So uh, Isaac Asimov rolled over in his grave. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, 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 I just yeah. Sorry. I, I love sci-fi. I love like that golden era of American sci-fi. And, <laughs> yep, that's all. That movie was a travesty. I love uh, bringing Colin down from a high. Mm-hmm. And you found, <laughs> so now, now we have Red Belt and we have... iRobot? iRobot. Well, yeah. You know how we did the Why I Hate Forrest Gump segment? Uh-huh. I think I'm going to think I'm gonna do Why I Love iRobot. That, that would be, I think that would be difficult even for you. <laughs> I don't know if you could really come up with something convincing there. The podcast would be over. Yeah. Uh, do you wanna Do you wanna read the the email or? I think you should you should do this one. Okay, fair enough. Um, so Christian from Cincinnati writes in, and you know we're gonna get flooded with emails now. Uh, so just make sure you let us know where you're writing in from too. That's, that's so we can make sure it's not from India. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So this is a really lengthy email, um, and it's all good, I promise. But I'm just gonna point out some of. The little things that he he, he said in this. Um, I listened to your podcast for about seven hours. Listened to almost all of them in random order because I chose the podcast based completely on title. Anyways, just wanted to make some comments for you guys. Um, he goes on to say that he was a little disappointed in Colin for liking America's <laughs> Top Model. He said, you said something about the word schmizing? No, I don't see... I don't ever remember saying I liked America's Next Top Model. And I this, remember saying right. I watched it. This is why these emails are good, so you can clarify our positions on them. Those, those, are, those are not the same things. I have to watch lots of things that I don't like, such as the film Red Belt, or iRobot, <laughs> or really the first five episodes of Jessica Jones, because that's as far as I got. Um, so to clarify, you do not like America's Next Top Model. No. Okay. No, I don't. So we've got that cleared up. Uh, Christian, I hope that you're happy with that answer and it suffices. Um, He goes and talks about a few things that we have discussed on here. Um, Let me go ahead and talk about uh, Creed. That's what I wanted to talk about. Oh, yeah. Skip over the part where he says I was right about Jessica Jones. Oh, That's that's fine. No, it's Creed. No, let's go to Creed. Sure. (laughs) No, we'll go back, okay? (laughs) Just just real quick. So, okay, for Jessica Jones, he, he... now, mind you, I just want to be clear. This is a very long email, and we're picking out certain parts. Um, you guys discussed your first thoughts on the show, Jessica Jones. I also think this show started very strong, 
But I agree on the point that you made on liking a show when you don't like the main character. It is really annoying watching something when you are somewhat happy when anything bad is happening to the main <laughs> character. A show that I feel the same way about is Homeland. Carrie Matheson has morals, being a hard worker, fighting for the people she loves, and doing... Yeah, they, so he talks about how she is... The use of her character is emotionally exploitative, which is something you touched on with... And something I experienced with like the three episodes I watched. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, so that's, that's, that's really interesting feedback. I like that. Yeah. Um, and, and then... Okay, so... I want to talk about the Creed thing real fast, because uh, we never have seen Southpaw, and Christian has. So yeah. he says, the last thing you guys mentioned, Southpaw, when talking about Creed, I saw both. Creed was by, by far better and really enjoyed the entire movie. The fight scenes really did seem more <clears throat> more real than the other Rocky movies, and I actually felt like I was invested in the characters' relationships with each other. Southpaw, on the other hand, I felt was terrible. Jake yeah. Gyllenhaal's character was completely unlikable, and the movie is sad for 95% of the time. And there is no way anyone who watched it went out of the theater with a smile on their face. You feel like a, quote, piece of shit, and I can't say I was enjoying myself at that point in the movie. Um, at and, any point in the movie. At any yeah. point in the movie. So, anyways, to close this out, he says, um, I really enjoy your podcast. You brought a bunch of good points I never thought, thought of, and it really made me want to go back and watch a number of these movies you talked about again. You guys really do have a ton of film, television... Ton of film and television knowledge, as well as Colin knowing a ton of video games as well. You guys really seem like professional critics and really want you two to keep it up. Thanks for reading my long and maybe pointless email. I am now your biggest fanboy. And we'll stop there. Well, thanks, Christian, for the uh, enlightening email. Yeah, this is, uh, this is way more than I ever expected. So we, we appreciate you writing this in. And thanks for being the first one. Maybe you'll win a cool prize. Thanks for gently validating us. We really needed that. <laughs> Strokes of the ego we, is important. We really kind of sit here and cry and hold each other after every episode, knowing that <laughs> they're falling on deaf ears. And yeah. All right, and we have one more email to read. Yeah, this is crazy. Two emails. Two emails. We went a long time without ever receiving a single email. We're so close to that Hulu contract. It's coming. Contract. It's coming. I, it. I gear. <laughs> I can smell it. Yeah. I think that's the Hulu contract I smell. Anyways, mm-hmm. um, so this is from Justin Lin in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Um, go ahead, you read this one. So he writes, A friend of mine recently told me he thinks Abrams is the Spielberg of our generation. What are your thoughts on that? If I were born 20 years later, would the new Star Wars be replaced with the original Jurassic Park? So I feel like this is a really genuine question. And... I mean, all right, so I'm just going to say no. Just There's no way. I mean, <laughs> Spielberg is be easy for to make a case for him being the most influential director of all time and most prolific director of all time. Maybe not the greatest director of all time, but certainly excellent. Uh, but so I feel like an easy way to settle this was to be looking at how many big films Abrams has directed and then see like what film <laughs> Spielberg was making at that point in his <laughs> career. Yeah. And we'll just, we could just shut this down right now. I mean, so the, the thing with Abrams though is he hasn't done a ton of film work. We went over this in, in our review of Star Wars. Right? Yeah. He, I mean, he's, Directed and written a few movies, but I mean, Star Trek, Mission Impossible 3, Mission Impossible 3 was his first one, Star Trek, 
Super 8, Star Trek, Star Wars. So, I mean, that's four movies. Yeah. It's hard to really compare somebody who's done four movies to somebody who's... So, I mean, so I wonder if Justin meant... I mean, is he implying stylistically, or... Uh... I think he, I think this may be sarcastic. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, joke's on me again. Gosh darn it. <laughs> but then again, who knows? There might be somebody out there who really believes that. I Well, I, I mean, yeah. Let, let's, okay, I, I believe this is H. I believe this is truly s- sarcastic. But let's just take it from a perspective that it, it wasn't being sarcastic. I mean, I'm sure there's a 15-year-old boy somewhere out there who believes that J.J. Abrams is the greatest director on Earth, and he's better than Spielberg because... I mean, Spielberg's recent work, although good in some aspects, a la Lincoln, which was fabulous, and I've heard great things about Bridge of Spies, but War Horse wasn't exactly E.T., uh, you know. I love that horse, man. And Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was an abomination. Yeah, but I can blame that on George Lucas and you sure can feel fine at the end of the day. Yeah, but I mean, all right, so what, like even we're getting, if we get out of Spielberg's like TV, made for TV movies, oh, Spielberg got a start in TV too, by the way, just so you know, apparently, <laughs> uh, guest directed a bunch of shows um, and then Duel and then, which was a lot of people consider his first good product mm-hmm. still guest directing stuff made more tv movies the sugarland express we have no idea what that is but it stars goldie hawn uh and then we have jaws close encounters 1941 raiders et twilight zone film which yeah uh temple of doom the color purple empire of the sun last crusade always hook schindler's list jurassic park yeah i mean so maybe the, maybe we're comparing like the financial success of the movie. That that's the only the only thing I could see as being relevant. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think Justin has successfully railroaded this podcast. Yeah, wait, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're, yeah, we're we're theorizing about this, but I think really we can safely say no. No, I don't. I don't see if there is context for here, or if you were. Interpreting this question in a way that we haven't addressed, then please let us know. But yes, I don't really see how that's a valid comparison at all. Um, but thank you for writing, Justin. Yes, thank Fascinating. you. Thank you for your feedback. We appreciate all emails. And uh, like we said, we are going to continue to promise to put any email that you write, we're going to read, uh, unless it's a lengthy story like Christian, we're going to put at least part of it on the podcast. We'll, we'll cherry pick the fluff that makes us sound good. Exactly. And uh, feel free to give us those uh, reviews on iTunes, uh, five-star reviews. Leave us comments on there. We'll read those, too. Um, midnightfilmreview at gmail.com. Email us, and you'll get heard. Yeah. Um, so we're going to go ahead and start the podcast now after we've done stroking our ego. Yeah. And we'll go back to beating the dead horse. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it's our, it's our, our one-two punch. <laughs> Sugar do it. Do what works. Yes, exactly. Um, so we're going to start with an open discussion where we're going to talk about a few things: a um, little bit Star Wars, box office, Netflixy, YouTube, a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Open discussion. Then we both have two recommendations for you, 
And then we're going to end it with a review of the latest Quentin Tarantino film, Hateful Eight. Sounds, Sounds good. Sounds good to me. All right, let's hop into this open discussion. Um, so we're going to rehash a few things that we talked about in earlier episodes just to go back and um, to prove everybody that we were right about everything. It, because, saying. yeah, I'm sure they were doubting that Star Wars was going to make money. We were, <laughs> we were the, <laughs> the, the crazy screaming from the sidelines. and right. We showed them. So in through a little less than three weeks, Star Wars has amassed... Um, just shy of seven hundred and forty-three million, I believe. I think it was seven hundred and forty-two, and some odd, some odd million dollars. Yeah, seven forty-two and change. Um, which is going probably after the end of this day. Probably as we're speaking now, it will have surpassed Avatar as the highest-grossing film in the U.S. Highest, yeah, highest-grossing domestic film. Ever. Ever. Which, yeah. if you think about that, so Avatar ran for, I believe it was six months, um, to amass that much. Uh, Star Wars has done it in a little under three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Two and a half weeks. That's pretty crazy. Yep. But, looking at the, the way that the international box office is going, um, it appears that it will not come close to touching Avatar's overall box office. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I think uh, I think time will tell. There, we're already crushing domestic records, but then we're we're losing ground internationally. So, I guess. Uh, and you had mentioned that before on the podcast that, and I didn't know this, that China just doesn't care about Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And uh, although why China or anyone would care about Avatar, I don't really know. But uh, apparently, they're Chinese. Chinese culture, Chinese movie culture likes uh, big summer blockbusters, like we do. Right. Yeah. And I looked, uh, Box Office Mojo didn't have great information, but I went to some other less reliable, so I'm not going to sit here and say this is in stone, Yeah. but um, 53 countries around the world, Avatar tops is the top grossing movie in those 53 countries. Yeah. That's insane. That's, yeah. 53 countries yeah. is a lot. It's kind of insane. Um, so... And China was one of them, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which um, I, I this I don't want to sound like I am being stereotypical. Like I don't want to I don't want to sound like I'm stereotyping Chinese people, but I feel like <laughs> uh, they love technology, right? And I feel like Asia in general are super ahead of the curve when it comes to. I don't. I don't know if technology. I like where you're going. Where I'm you're just going saying that this. the fact that the Avatar was in 3D and it was a little bit of a niche thing, probably because if I remember correctly, and this is totally from memory, and I'm not saying this is 100 percent accurate, I'm pretty sure James Cameron actually had them build 3D theaters in certain parts of China just for this show. Show this movie, like freestanding, not freestanding, but just like a 3D, like a, a screen that was IMAX that fit 3D was like built into certain that they didn't have the capabilities. Huh. If I remember correctly. I remember that being a big a big thing. Because he I mean, obviously they know Well I mean the studios pushed the technology everywhere, right? Because three right. D was not a thing. Yeah. Between, you know, nineteen nineteen eighty and Right. But I'm just saying for them to care that much about a certain audience is, that isn't American is a big thing. And I, I don't know, to me I just I feel like that 
you know, Star Wars isn't necessarily a technological, uh, it doesn't advance technology the way that Avatar did. I, 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 don't, and I, I mean, what other reason could you have to explain why? I don't know. What reason do we have to explain why it made so much money here domestically? Like, it. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it, it. It's Star Wars has encapsulated the cultural zeitgeist for the last thirty years, so it's pretty much ingrained in our brain. Mm-hmm. And it's a classic reluctant hero story. Um, you know, I. I don't know, but I feel like that the, that the Chinese people would appreciate that just as much as anybody. I mean, there is steeped in their culture as well. Yeah, I mean, yes and no, but, uh, I, I, I just, I don't think you could make the, make the comparison for somebody that has had no exposure to That's this. That's true. Right. I don't think we can even really understand. Right. And you know? you, like you said that they didn't even start showing the, the original films until the mid two thousands, correct? Yeah, there was there was some uh, some big screening events that yeah, kind of not not that many years ago. So, uh, I mean, maybe I predict that Star Wars will be the first domestic billion dollar box office. I don't think I'm like going too far out yeah, on the limb I mean, there, but we're, we're three quarters of the way there, two yeah. and a half weeks in. So, um, but I just don't think it's gonna. I don't think it's gonna catch Avatar. I think if it caught Titanic, I would be surprised. I think it's going to settle in just ahead of Jurassic World. We'll see. I mean, not that it matters. Not that it matters at all. Yeah. (laughs) We're still going to be just as poor (laughs) the day that Star Wars does or doesn't set the worldwide box office record. Exactly. Um, And another thing I want to touch on was uh, IndieWire released an article of the 15... um, Original series that Netflix is releasing in 2016. 15 original, not including all the other. We know another House of Cards is coming, another Daredevil is coming. I presume another Jessica Jones, but that is not 100% certain. I don't feel at this point. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It might be a little <clears throat> too early to start doubling down on that. But. Yeah. De- we definitely know there's a Daredevil. They've already released teaser stuff for mm-hmm. it. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, there's rumors of another season of Rest Development. They, they have a lot of things in the pipe, but 15 new original ideas. So we know where they are planning to build their future. Right where we predicted. Right where we predicted. They are pretty much, I mean, they're for the most part saying, screw everything else we're going for. It. I mean, if, let's say this is 15 years ago, and FX said, we're coming out with 15 original series this year. We would be shocked on the floor. That would have never happened for a cable network releasing 15 new shows. Well, and there are a lot of reasons why that wouldn't have happened. Mostly because the time slots needed to sell the advertising space to like monetize exactly. those 15 shows don't exist. Right. You know? Netflix does not have that problem. Nope. <laughs> You, you will go home and binge watch this entire show in two days. <laughs> right. I mean, you you have 52 weeks. Uh, so that's 52 weekends for them to release shows for you to binge watch. Mm-hmm. Um, is it oversaturation? I don't know. We're going to find out. Uh, well, see, and that's the thing is they, they get to diversify their programming. Hopefully, the idea is they put out something for everybody. Some right. quality uh, for everybody. You can find your... 
find your niche somewhere in Netflix original programming. So, and you know, one of the shows that was mentioned, we looked through the shows, um, <clears throat> was a Portuguese language film based yeah. in Brazil. Yeah, uh, they're obviously focused on spreading, you know, outside of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that's smart. I mean, you know, they have the the unique ability where uh, other U.S. entities like ABC and NBC, Fox, even though they have, you know, stations in these other countries, particularly, you know, uh, Fox has really been spreading their wings over the last few years, buying up cable space in other countries. They Netflix has a unique ability to not have to spend money to reach other countries, essentially. Yeah. They don't have to buy, uh, you know, or make deals with other other companies, you know. They can just say, here it is. Go find us. I just I I wonder how much money they're making to be able to afford to put down the capital to produce all this stuff and everything everything they put their name behind is if nothing else even if you don't like it the production is there yeah uh, there so got got you know what I Godspeed I hope I hope they stay profitable and keep making this original content. And I think one thing they're doing is there is now a home for projects that the bigger mainstream media uh, production entertainment companies were not making happen. And (laughs) Netflix is interested. So that's very cool. Yeah. It's almost like indie TV, but it's not really indie TV. Let's be honest. It's more mainstream than that. But yeah, I mean, but no, you are right in a sense that I feel like, even though they're attracting David Fincher and Mitch Horowitz and all these big names from television and, t- and, and film, they're more likely to take a chance on a show that uh, isn't going to get made for networks, you know? Mm-hmm. Especially if it's an original idea and they see merit in it, they can take the risk because the audience is already there. Yeah, the, the, adver- the advertising revenue is not, you know... Making or breaking decisions. Like, exactly. I guess you put enough good stuff out there and you're going to make money and, and negate some of the losses, hopefully. We but. have to remember that Hulu and and Amazon are competition. And we'll, I'll use that to segue into this with the possibility of YouTube eventually even being competition for that. Mm-hmm. Even though YouTube is selling advertisements... You know, we've talked about the prescription or the, the subscription. No. They may be doing. They might be doing prescriptions before long too. But the subscription, um, YouTube Red. We talked about how horrible the name that is. But uh-huh. um, you know, there's probably been some confused Google searches <laughs> that, that led some boys into manhood. Right. But there's a lot of money that's being spent on YouTube advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, Want to elaborate a little bit? Yeah. Well, uh, so this year um and again this i I remember reading these articles around halloween um youtube's pewdiepie and if you don't know who that is that's okay don't go look at his channel uh his content is pretty much crap as far as i'm concerned (laughs) um little yeah you know you know what there's there quality there's quality gaming content out there there's quality original nerd or sci-fi or whatever geared content on YouTube and neither of those things (laughs) are you will find on PewDiePie's channel Um, but he made 
Twelve million dollars pre-tax, uh, 2015. <laughs> so much money. Um, so much money. And that's what we knew in October. Uh, so we found, uh, I think it was an independent article. Ind- um, yeah, independent.co.uk. That yeah, basically he's making more money pre-tax than a lot of A-list, A-list uh, film stars. Um, and so not all of this is from YouTube revenue. Uh, we have to be clear about that. There are promotional deals. There are licensing deals. He does does have a book deal, but a lot of his money still comes from uh, ad revenue, um, and he would not be making any money without YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so clearly, um, I think it's pretty safe to say that we're looking at a new form, a new medium. Um, and 10 years ago, I don't think, I don't think a lot of people would ever have believed that not only will, uh, YouTube content be like original and interesting, but that it will be relevant or you'll be able to become financially successful, uh, by running right. your own YouTube channel. Um, and I mean, just the production value that goes into some of these videos, I mean, you have videos that. Obviously, they put a lot of work into it, but from everything I understand by uh, PewDiePie, mm-hmm. I mean, he's really just, I, I could be wrong, I don't know, but he's just playing video games, right? I mean... He's being obnoxious and playing video right, games. Right, so, yeah. I mean, to me that is, I mean, he the, the overhead cost is zero for him. Like, he has, there's no overhead at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just like, I, so in the article that, and I'll link to it in the show notes, um has a list of the top 10 highest earning YouTubers. And he, I mean, he tops list at 12 million, but uh, Lindsay Sterling, um, who I have never heard of, I'm guessing she plays the violin, looks like, 6 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michelle Fan, 3 million. KSI, 5 million. The Fine Brothers, 8.5 million. Oh, God. Smosh. Yeah, Smosh eight, is a gaming channel. 8.5 million. Mm-hmm. Rosanna Pacino, 2.5 million. Roman Atwood, 2.5 million. Uh, Red and Link for that means. I mean, these are, I mean, they're just, that's a lot of millions of dollars yep. that's being spread around. And then you actually had. Yeah. Uh, well, example. but what I guess the, the more important point is, so it, it'd be easy to dismiss this saying, okay, well, a handful of people are making a lot of money, right. but that does not leave YouTube as a viable option for, you know, less less successful YouTubers, right. people with less video views, with less channel subs. Um, so there was a there was a Reddit AMA that went up and got derailed and got quickly shut down. I think it was a personal finance AMA. Uh, and this is, grain of salt, this is all hearsay. There's no way to prove that any of this was true um, or it was legitimate. But if it was true, I think there's an interesting point to be made that you don't have to be one of these 10 people to make a living doing this. Uh, this person claimed that they were in college. They'd been doing this, uh, running a channel for a couple of years and they claimed to, uh, it wasn't a gaming channel, which is important. I think a lot of people think, you know, only these, whatever, only PewDiePie's <laughs> people making content like him are making money. It was a science and kind of gadget themed channel. 
uh, somewhere between a quarter and a half million subscribers, which they would not elaborate on for anonymity. Uh, they were creating content part-time because they were in college, obviously. And uh, they had made around $140,000 uh, through um, AdWords, uh, through YouTube advertising for the fiscal year so far. And the, the reason they're making this thread is because they had made all this money and they like had no idea what the tax consequences were going to be, <laughs> basically. Like, you know, I have all this magic internet money in my bank account all of a sudden. <laughs> do, do I need to hire an accountant? Um, so, yeah, I, I think that this is a real thing. Um, there is quality content here. And I know you're not as involved in YouTube as I am. Um, but there is a lot of really cool, really diverse stuff out there. Um, you know, I don't need to plug them at all, but the very first time I actually bothered subscribing to a YouTube channel was for this channel called Team Four Star. And they create this little show called Dragon Ball Z Abridged. Uh, and if anybody's curious, if you're a big fan of Dragon Ball Z and you haven't seen Abridged, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Uh, these folks edit and rewrite and dub dialogue and produce a short, humorous version of the original show. Um, it's, it is true to the theme, to the characters, and the big plot points, but it's hilarious, and it is like subversive while paying tribute to the original show. Uh, and it was so good that I could not believe what I was seeing. Like, <laughs> this is something I never even knew existed, this kind of content. It's, it's huge now, by the way. There are a ton of abridged series out there, oh, right. famous animated shows. Um, I don't know how many subscribers they had uh, when I first stumbled onto it, but um, they're, they're close to 2 million subscribers by now. Um, the, the problem with what they're doing is they can't really make money from the, the main content they create because it is using copyright content that somebody else owns. So they, they've had some hurdles kind of making yeah. this, uh, making a living through doing this. But um, the point is, it was so funny, so well written and edited and acted that I watched it all immediately, watched it all again, and I would wait in anticipation every month for the next episode to come out. Um, and there's there's a lot of stuff like that out there, uh, a lot of different content. You know, there's there there's more machinima um, like original animated content. 3D animated content. There are YouTube personality channels, which I don't find as much value in. But uh, I, I would say I have close to 50 subscriptions now, maybe more, to channels that I love and I look forward mm -hmm. to updates from. Um, it is a big part of my uh, kind of entertainment profile. Yeah. And it fits a niche that TV does not fit, that film does not fit. Um, you know, I can watch a YouTube video from one of my favorite channels in the 10 minutes I have when I'm early to work mm -hmm. or when I'm in bed on my new tablet mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. So, um, um, YouTube is definitely, um, it, it's, it's hard to really understand, 
the success of YouTube until you realize that they are the second most used search engine on the internet. Um, that it's crazy. I mean, you know, we always think of Yahoo or even uh, Bing, Bing or DuckGoGo or whatever it's called. GoGo Duck. Duck. I, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Lycos and Alta Vista for life, yo. Yes, there you go. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, Google obviously comes to mind, but the second largest search engine is YouTube. And because you don't just, you know, you're talking about to using it for entertainment, but there's also a huge area uh, where people are making money off of instructional videos, mm -hmm. cooking videos, how-to videos, you know, how to, to change your light switch, how to change your outlet, you know, how to put a battery. I mean, they're... I've literally gone to YouTube to figure out how to do things. Um, also, not just uh, using it for, you know, gaming, but the NBA has utilized YouTube on for, you know, highlights. And mm -hmm. they've embraced YouTube. I mean, so the, the money that's flowing around YouTube is, it goes beyond entertainment, and it's a very unique outlet that anybody can use and for the most part, it's free. Um, now, like we said, they're adding a subscription, and they're actually forced, that was part of the thing, is they forced anybody who's making money off AdWords, or AdSense, that they were going to have to sign a, a deal with, with the subscription. Mm -hmm. um, because, I don't, I mean, YouTube's obviously making money, uh, but they want to make more money. Yeah. I, I think that is an interesting, <laughs> because I, I, I haven't really looked into it. I just read a small think piece about it, and people like uh, PewDiePie and um, some other person I can't remember his name. They uh, were kind of not really wanting to do this because it was going to cut into the availability of their videos, the amount of money they were going to make, mm -hmm. and the freedom. Because now you're essentially under contract. Uh, so I think that's interesting. Um, It, we already know that money is filtering from advertising on television. Mm -hmm. And it only makes sense that it's going to go to YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I don't know. I, I thought that was really interesting. I'm glad you brought it up. I think it would be also interesting to see where we are a year from now. Yeah, and, and that's the thing going forward is we have this incredible distribution platform. Um, and it's super easy to use uh, because Google owns it. So it's a quality quality product, mm -hmm. at least from the like the end user creating an account and putting up videos. Um, and I don't know if when this all started and they started uh, monetizing it through advertising that they thought that people would be making this kind of money, even if it's not all directly from you know hits on YouTube videos. Yeah. Um, so. The, the subscription subscription service YouTube Red um, is kind of the first step they've taken towards maybe cutting themselves in a little bit. Uh, so yeah, I am I'm just really curious what happens here um, over the next year, over the next even couple years. Uh, you yeah. know, what like I mean, do we do we have like official channels with you know different rules right. and different. 
you know, levels of bandwidth availability, you know, where, where do they, where do they take this or because it's been pretty open and pretty free, um, mm-hmm. so far, you know, obviously they're, uh, very strict about, um, putting copyrighted material that doesn't yeah. belong to up without the proper safeguards. But other than that, you know, it, it is what it is because anybody can come and upload their crap. Yeah. And lots of people are looking for stuff to watch on yeah. YouTube. So, I mean, are we going to see our first YouTube uh, artist strike? We're gonna <laughs> are they gonna form a uh, a guild? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, well, and at the end of the day, do, do those handful of people and that advertising revenue does that mean enough for them to get? Like negotiating power somehow. Right. Like what, we don't even know what you know what the impact on the bottom line is for. Because the, here's the thing: is they could go to Vimo, but they're not going to have the platform that YouTube has, right? I mean, they're not going to have. It's not going to have the reachability. Yeah. Um, you know, you may love Vimo, but th- there's no. <laughs> you're not going to make that much money on Vimo. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, this is one of those things that if you have an opinion. I'd be really interested to hear yeah. what it is. Come on, yeah. all, you, all you YouTube junkies out there. Write us, write us a little note. Um, I think that's going to do it for our open discussion. Click the like button and subscribe. <laughs> uh, that's all I got. All right, so we're going to uh, head into some recommendations. We'll be right back after these messages. Yeah, not. Come and tell me what you're thinking. Because just when the boat is sinking, a little Welcome back, everyone, from a short commercial break. Uh, I'm here with Colin again, and we're going to do some recommendations. Are you go- are you going for an old timey yeah. radio? Yeah. What? I mean, no, that's more Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. We, we don't have to play with play this game right now. <laughs> yeah. So we actually have a co recommendation this week, which is one of those things where I get excited because I thought I think I found something new. And I got to watch the first six episodes, and I text I text Brian about content for the podcast, and like, hey, I found this great new thing. He's like, oh yeah, I watched that already. <laughs> <laughs> well, screw you, man. Hey, I had a I had a four day weekend. I had time to burn. Okay, uh, yeah. and uh, it's the show is completely engrossing. Yeah. So speaking of Netflix original content, um, in case you haven't heard of this, it is Making a Murderer. Um, and I, it, it's sweeping social media right now. Like there are, I, Katie keeps showing me like mm-hmm. BuzzFeed articles, and they've they've these lawyers are being interviewed again. Um, but the show is a ten hour documentary. Um, it it is part of a project that was started in around two thousand five, uh, and it actually features footage and information from as far back as nineteen eighty five. Uh, 10 episodes around one hour each, which means we're recommending that you sit down on Netflix and watch a 10 hour documentary. That was the sound of your mind. Exploding. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I, I can do a quick synopsis if you like, or would you rather? No, go ahead. Yeah. So the, the documentary, uh, centers on a man, Stephen Avery, uh, who was c- 
1985 was tried and eventually convicted for a crime which he didn't commit. And uh, after like 10 years of appeals, um, he was kind of left to rot. And uh, only, only after 18 years of incarceration did uh, DNA evidence uh, and the intervention of the Wisconsin Innocence Project um, prove that he was innocent and show not only that, but prove who the, the real culprit was uh, and allow his release. And subsequent to that, he was a free man for, what, like a, a year? Something mm -hmm. like that. Not, maybe not even. Uh, before he was arrested and uh, indicted for another crime, this time uh, murder. And this is real. This all really happened. Um, it's like real life Fargo. It, it's, but it's it's not because it's not funny. Uh, it's just it's horrific. So I I uh, so full disclosure. I'm uh, a paralegal student right now, so this stuff is fascinating to me. I'm constantly pausing and explaining what is going on to my girlfriend who I'm watching this with. But I don't think I've ever wept uh, so many times watching a TV show. Or documentary it is heartbreaking um yeah it really is I, episode four i actually had to shut it off because i was getting so angry yep. that i couldn't at that time i was like i'm just fed up with this right now i cannot finish this episode right now i have to come back and as engrossing as it is it is just as just as infuriating yeah it, it is truly a haunting look into how the criminal justice system um underserves uh, the poor, the, uh, I would say minorities, but non-white, non-white people, um, and also uh, people who aren't smart, um, mm -hmm. or not even that, who don't have proper education. Um, easily manipulated, how easily uh, it is to get a conviction versus uh, to be prove yourself innocent, mm -hmm. um, how most investigations are looking for a conviction rather than exoneration. Yeah. Oh, that, I mean, that's how every investigation starts anyway. Um, but yeah, uh, it's a, a haunting look at the, the pitfalls of the criminal justice system. And not only that, the effects um, of, of this, these series of events on this man and his family. Um, the documentary is not neutral. Uh, I will say that. Um, but at a certain point watching the show, I don't know how they could have remained neutral. Um, because right. it is painfully obvious that even if you don't really believe, um, what his, this man's, um, defenses or, the, the way his lawyers present a case for his defense. By the way, his lawyers, I could watch them talk all day. I was, yeah. they are so good. Uh, yeah, if, if, if it wasn't for his lawyers in the show, you would probably lose all faith in humanity yeah. by the time they're done. Um, because they're, <laughs> they're the only people who uh, really seem to have a clear grasp of reality. Yeah. And they, they fight very hard uh, for for the defense of their client. Um, and one thing that I think is interesting, and just because I think it is our nature as Americans that we have been brought up that 
defense lawyers are sleazy and they're just trying to make money and the prosecutors working for the state are the ones that are the ones that are laboring hard to rid society of scum and I feel like if you watch this it's almost excuse me the exact opposite well it is and from just from a not even a television perspective but if you think about the way the uh, prosecutorial system works in this country you have three groups of people involved in basically working towards prosecuting you Um, you have the police who are arresting you collecting the evidence They work with the prosecutors who are uh, presenting a case uh, against you in court. We work with the judges who uh, oversee the trial um, and decide basically jury instruction, rules of evidence, and what does and doesn't go. Those three people all work for the the same, they all work for the same person. Mm -hmm. They they have working relationships. Um, If something goes bad, they're all going to be held accountable. Um, and they have, I'm not going to say unlimited, but they have money from the government. On the other side of that, you have somebody who's convicted of a crime who may not even have enough money to pay for a lawyer for the defense, in which case a public defender, um, is going to be assigned and depending on their, their caseload, depending on their motivation, you may or may not have any chance of a fair defense. Right. Um, and the moral of the story is, and this is what I learned in my criminal law class, don't ever be accused of a crime because it's just, it's not going to end well, no matter what the, the system is not designed to protect or exonerate you. It is the cards are stacked against you as they say in the show. So if that's not something you really understood, then hopefully the show, you will understand it after watching the show, after watching the show. Um, But it's definitely a must-watch, and um, I'm glad you brought it up, um, because I, I was planning on on recommending it, but I felt like uh, it was it, it's a show, it's hard to talk about because one you don't want to give anything away uh, because it unfolds like a like a mystery, mm-hmm. um, and two it it's it's so unpleasant because there it, it, there's not a lot of hope, and this man is been freed from jail once and to see how things play out the second time you're just it hurts your core like all politics aside your your feelings about your criminal justice system is going to be uprooted and turned on its head unless you just are a stubborn human being yeah well and what's happened what happened when i read the senate so the first episode covers Stephen Avery's original uh, arrest, conviction, and jail time. And when I read the synopsis for the show, I told Katie exactly what was going to happen. That he was a, a poor person. Um, I said he probably wasn't white, but he does end up being white. But who was um, of borderline intelligence. And indeed, Stephen Avery, I think, is tested as a child and has an IQ of around 70. Mm-hmm. Um and he is going to be victimized at some point uh, during uh, uh, during his incarceration. The real killer will <laughs> will confess to the crime, and it won't matter. And all of those things happened. And there's a reason that I was able to predict that because 
this stuff happens all the time. Yeah. Doesn't happen every time, but it happens enough that it's a known pattern. Um, and it's very sad. There's, <laughs> there's not a lot of hope in this show. And real quick, I don't, I don't want to go too long cause I want people to stop listening and go watch the show. Um, but the, the art of coercion was probably the roughest part for me. Um, there's someone else who is involved in this quote-unquote second crime. I mean, it was a crime, but I, I seriously... I don't believe they're involved at all, mm-hmm. which is another miscarriage of justice in the way that this person is treated. A 16-year-old boy, that's where I broke down. Yeah, it's that, that might be the hardest part of the show to deal with. Um, but again, you, you get to see how little is needed to not only indict you, but then sadly, probably successfully convict you. Um, and no matter how many mea culpas you issue or how many red flags there are, um, (laughs) I mean, lots of people over the years have either been tricked or coerced or beaten into confessing to crimes they didn't commit. And lots of those people are in jail. And that's the sad reality of, uh, of law enforcement and criminal justice. So, so we're going to move on and and I'm going to recommend my next one. But as I'm looking at what I have to recommend and what you recommend, this isn't a very uplifting, uh, recommendation, uh, just based on the subject matter of what I'm re- recommending um, and what you've recommended already. So I, the next thing is a quasi-recommendation because I don't think it's going to be for everybody. Um, it's a foreign film that is filmed mostly in English, but it's uh, from German uh, Germany. It's called Victoria, and it stars Lea Costa, um, who I, I'm almost positive she's going to become very well-known um, in the U.S. very soon. She um, is, uh, she's Spanish. She's of Spanish descent. Um, not really sure exactly if she's a Spaniard or if she's um, from Latin America, but, oh, Spain. Yep, she's from Spain. Just saw, okay, so, but, uh, so she is the main, she's the lead, and you follow her around Berlin as she meets a group of guys who are German, so uh, they they all speak English because she's she doesn't know German and they don't know Spanish, so they use a common language of English. Um, and this film is filmed in one one take, one single take throughout. It's uh, kind of long; it's two hours and eighteen minutes, um, and it feels a little bit like a stage production because of that. So um, events that would normally you would assume would take uh, maybe hours, um, take minutes. But basically, she meets these guys, they have a good time, she's like, I have to go work, and so she goes to work, they follow her to work, and they convince her to help them do some very um, bad things. Yeah. And uh, this, the reason I say it's a quasi-recommendation is because not everybody's going to enjoy this film. One, it's almost impossible to understand the dialogue. You, even though they're speaking English, I would, you, you're going to have to have some kind of caption on because you can't understand. Their accents are so, so thick. They don't know the proper words in English, so it's broken. Um, 
it's also very frantic. The camera movements. Um, there's an, a, a scene where a cameraman is actually running to catch up with them as they're riding on a bike, um, and that can take you out of the film. Um, but it's a very unique experience, and um, the fact that it is one take, I think, takes away from probably the story. I don't know how great this movie would be if it was shot in a traditional way because it is somewhat a simple um, script. And from everything I've read, it was only 15 or 20 pages long and a lot of the dialogue was improvised. It's just put in situations, which, again, makes it easier to have it in one take because you're not remembering lines, Mm -hmm. you're just remembering situations. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, you know, and searching for words in the actors because they're trying to think of the proper English words. So it comes off a, a very genuine and real, um, but it is it is a brutal film. Um, it is not... Uh, it's fun and light in the beginning, and it rapidly transcends into darkness and becomes a harrowing experience, to put it that way. Um not not something that's going to be for everybody. So I don't 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 email me telling me that Victoria is horrible and you hated it because I warned you it's not for everybody. I think true cinephiles will love it. I think that people who um, enjoy um, unique films will will like it. Just uh, maybe not on the same level that you would enjoy their films. Yeah. So enough. it's uh, Victoria, and uh, you can watch it on Amazon. Um, or probably you can probably rent it right now through your local cable provider. Uh, definitely didn't come out to theater around here, so check it out. Okay, well, uh, I guess we'll move on to. I think this is going to be the last recommendation. Uh, I actually am bringing a game to the table this week. Um, it is called Broken Age. Uh, this is not a game that came out this year. Uh, it was actually one of my favorite games of 2014. Um, it just recently became available as a, uh, one of the monthly free games if you have a PlayStation Plus subscription. Uh, so I originally played the game on PC, but then I you know, got free access to the PlayStation 4 port and ran through it again. Um, it's a point-and-click adventure game uh, in the traditional sense, um, but it is... So much more than that. Um, if you're familiar with Tim Schafer or Double Fine Games, uh, he and his studio have this story tradition of just creating um, really excellent and unique and ambitious uh, stories and characters uh, in video games. And this is actually the first game he was involved with directly since uh, Grim Fandango. Um, but... It is, it is absolutely beautiful. Um, it all, the, the art style is uh, incredibly unique. It looks painted. Um, but more than that, the, uh, the story um, is beautiful and heartfelt and incredible. Um, and it actually uh, focuses on two protagonists. And you kind of... You can you can play their stories completely through and then switch to the other one or kind of play back and forth depending on what if you get stuck somewhere or what you, what you're in the mood for. Um, and both character stories involve kind of a 
com- coming of age story in which they break a like uh, break away from tradition or they break out of the normalcy routine of their lives. Um, and I don't think I really need to say any more than that, but um, it is just a it is a beautiful to look at, beautifully written, um, beautifully acted. Uh, there's some famous people, um, you know, uh, Elijah Wood and Jack Black, um, play hilarious characters and do a great job. Um, but at the end of the day, this is a unique story, uh, could not have been told in any other medium besides video game. Um, and for me, it was, uh, unforgettable. Uh, so that's Broken Age. It's available on pretty much every platform you could ever imagine. Um, <laughs> Windows, Mac OS, Linux, Oya, iOS, Android, PlayStation. Um, PlayStation, really? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Broken Age. Uh, go check it out. It's awesome. If, if you loved adventure games, if you grew up on LucasArts stuff, you already played Tim Schafer games before, and uh, give, it, give it a try. I may have to check that out. Thanks, Colin. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's going to do it for recommendations. I think so. Um, Time to get down and dirty. Well, can we... Is, is your recommendation at least uplifting? Is it a good story? Is it going to... It is, yes. Okay, good. It's happy. Well, it, yes. After making a murder and it, Victoria, <laughs> we need some... People are going to be like, what are you guys, just trying to depress us? Um, that's good. No, it is. You, uh, especially a Vela story, you... Uh, I don't know if it's spoiling too much, but the game opens with you on the day, your promised day, basically. And as you sort of move towards that happening, you realize that what that means is you are being sacrificed to a giant monster um, for the good of the town. (laughs) And rather than go through with that, you are a fighter and you get the heck out of there. And that begins your adventure. So, Well, good. Yeah. Sounds uplifting. You're not, she's not getting sacrificed, right? No, if she's... you said you can sacrifice, then yeah. No, Bella, Bella's a badass. So, okay, good. Yeah. All right, so that's going to be recommendations. Uh, hang on, we'll be right back with a review of Let me see your pretty little smile Put your troubles in a little pile And I will sort them out for you right. Welcome to the review of Quentin Tarantino's latest film, The Hateful Eight. Starring Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, Jennifer Jason Lee, Tim Roth, Damien Brashear. How could you forget Walton Goggins? I was the best for last. Oh, okay. Walton Goggins. I ruined it. I'm sorry. That's all, that's all right. Now, did I get everybody or did I miss anybody? You totally threw me off my... I mean, you, you could mention Channing Tatum. Yeah. You know, originally I thought that was a spoiler, but his name is in the opening it's, Yeah, it's credits. in the opening credits. So it's not a spoiler. But yeah, now the fact that you're talking about whether or not it's a spoiler, that could be confusing. <laughs> oh, good point. Now that's a spoiler. Crap. Yeah. Just uh, just skip over this part. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to think of a clever title for this movie involving uh, like S- Sam Jackson is a bad mother. Uh, uh, a- <laughs> 1875 edition or something like that. <laughs> I-, I don't know. Oh, Michael Madsen and Bruce Dern. Those were the other two. Oh, yeah. Out. Those are important. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry, ruined And James, James Park. But that, oh, that's okay. That, you know, happens to the best of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I'll start off. Um, if anybody listened to our retrospective of Quentin Tarantino films, I think you see um, where 
Colin and I fall that come down on separate movies. You know, he's team bastard. I'm team Django. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, uh, Hateful Eight was everything I love about Quentin Tarantino. And even the parts that tend to get on my nerves, uh, I think were muted um, in this film. So I really loved it. I, I thought, um, it, as a director, I don't think this is his best directed film. Um, but as a writer, and I really enjoy his writing. Um, this is his best written film, in my opinion. This movie lives off its dialogue. It lives off its acting. And it's quick wit. And it is a hilarious film. It is by far his funniest film. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, I can see that. It uh, it is definitely um, hits a warm spot in my heart too because I'm a very I'm very fond of westerns. Anybody who knows me, um, I took my grandfather to see it after you and I saw it. Uh, I really? It, yes, and he loved it. He he loves westerns, um, and you know he kind of we, I would always rent westerns and go when I would ever visit him and he absolutely loved it he, no. he was taken back by all the uh, n-words yeah. he, he was surprised by that uh, but he, overall he, he loved the film see I don't know if I would honestly characterize this as a western um, in fact I would say I wouldn't it is a it is a Quentin Tarantino movie set at a specific year which happens mm. to be sometime po- I don't remember did they, did they no, say they the year say. sometime post-civil war yeah um, but I, I just, I don't feel like this is a, I would call this film a Western in any sense. Uh, I think the only thing I would call it is a Quentin Tarantino film, uh, quite honestly. Um, and going back to our last podcast, uh, you pointed out that what you thought he was best at was putting characters in a room and building tension and... That is literally the only thing he does during this film. That is the film. Yeah. That is the entire film, is people in a room trying to figure out who's who. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I thoroughly enjoyed the film as well. Um, I would agree, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I would say it's his best written film, but then again, I don't know why, uh, you know, what else I would necessarily put in its place. Um it's not his most dynamic film. Uh, no, it's far from far from um, that. So if you're expecting something like Pulp Fiction, it's it is a far cry from that. Uh, it really the the closest closest film thematically and structurally to this film, I would say, is Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. Maybe the way that I explain this to people, just to be non-spoilery about it, is it's Reservoir Dogs with mixed with the. Bar scene in Glorious Bastards mixed with the end of Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. It's those three ideas in one film. Yeah, that that uh, that's pretty apt, actually. Um, there are some non-spoiler stuff we can talk about. Um, I think most important for the film and uh, something I really enjoyed was the the performances turned in mm-hmm. here. Absolutely, I. I um, Real quick, I want to touch on something um, before we get to it. I think another way to explain this film is it's the exact opposite of Kill Bill. Because yes. Kill Bill is action. It's Quentin Tarantino at his best when it comes to action. And Kill Bill is at his best when um, he's choreographing fight scenes. And the action in this is very minimal. 
I think we should start out by saying that. So this is when we say Reservoir Dogs, we mean this is Reservoir Dogs. Yes. This is built on dialogue and tension. There are a few moments of explosive action um, scattered throughout the film just to keep you uh, keep you satisfied mm-hmm. to uh, yeah to keep the audience invested kind of. Um, but I think we should start off with Kurt Russell just in my opinion because um, I tried to stay as spoiler free from this as I possibly could. I watched the first trailer and that was I tried to, to um, keep myself away from it. I didn't read the script when it was leaked. Um, I didn't really try, try to read any updates on on it at all. Um, and even though in on the poster and in the actual credits, Samuel Jackson is giving top billing. You just—I kind of assumed it was Kurt Russell because he's the one that is, was in the, the first trailer and he gets all the dialogue in the trailer. But he really isn't the main character. No, but yeah, go, going in, I sort of assumed the same thing, or that at the very least they were their characters were kind of of equal prevalence mm-hmm. as protagonists, something to that effect. But go on. So I uh, know, and I just—I think top down, everybody's performance was spot on and. Each we'll get more into it in spoilers a little bit, but each character uh, is nuanced in a way that they're not quite who you think they are. You know, Kurt Russell starts out and you think he may be smart and wily in Walter Goggins' character. Uh, Chris Mannix might be a buffoon and kind of bumbling, and I feel like it kind of ends up being a little bit opposite. See, I I don't know if I'd agree with you about the perceptions of uh, of John Ruth of Kurt Russell's character. Um, I, I kind, I kind of felt like I got a sense of who the character was pretty early on, and mm. that was consistent. Um, that could have been my outside perception, maybe. Of Kurt Russell. Well, and that so, um, that's something I wanted to talk about. His performance specifically, Kurt Russell, especially in movies like this, we're used to him playing a character in complete control. Yeah, the badass who is going to live, who is making all the right decisions. Um, and this character is, he is tough. I don't think that anybody's expecting anything less than that, but he's also, um, kind of not, he's, he's not in complete control. He's, he's not the smartest man. And Kurt Russell, again, I don't think that's a spoiler. You see that really before any of the big plot points happen Mm -hmm. in the film. Um, the the way Kurt Russell brings that to life, um, really, like I I kind of felt for the character, um, like it it was just it's such a departure from a, from what I'm used to seeing from him. Um, yeah, that that uh, kind of level of nuance, uh, and I really enjoyed that aspect of his performance. I agree, hundred um, percent. I'm so glad they took the character in that direction, and he just he he nailed it. <laughs> Um, I kind of want to save Samuel L. and Walter Goggins for last because I think those are the two best performances, if you're okay with that. Yeah, I mean, I, maybe we just say that uh, Walton Goggins gets get third billing. Yeah. Um, but by the end of the film, his performance threatens to steal the show. Yeah, for um, sure. I, I, think, I don't think that's a spoiler no, to say that. No, not at all. And also, walking out of the theater, we both agree that this is Samuel L.'s best performance. It's um, so good, and he doesn't deviate a lot from Samuel L. from mm-hmm. who he usually plays. It's, it's but, toned down though. It, it, he's not. 
the way I described it, I think, was he's not the loud, angry black man as much as he is the soft-spoken, badass black man in this. Well, yeah. I mean, you, he's, he's not playing uh, Jules. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, he, his, he hasn't turned in a performance like this in a long time. Um, that really, a performance that required anything of yeah. him in a long time. And he is so good and so fun to watch on screen that uh, I don't know how you could not enjoy this movie with him and he his character is. in it. Like, <laughs> he's, he's so fun and so good. Um, and he is essentially the smartest man in the room, uh, which, you know, <clears throat> there's been a lot to, to say about the, the racism uh, aspect of this movie because it's post-war and majority of the white people are racist mm-hmm. but um, the character the way he's written is he is the smartest man in, in this haberdashery mm-hmm. he is the the Sherlock Holmes so to speak that's solving the mystery he's picking his spots he's aligning with the people that he needs to align with to survive and he's not overextending himself but at, at certain times he and uh, we'll get into more of this in um, spoilers but He's provoking the right people at the right time. Yeah. Well, so maybe let's move away from characters. Um, well, real quick, I, I wanted to just say yeah. I thought Tim Roth's character was excellent too. Oh yeah. Him putting on a performance in the movie, performing. I uh, finally enjoyed Tim Roth's performance in a Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. movie. Hot damn! I never thought <laughs> that was going to happen, but it actually did. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, honestly, uh, out of the kind of that group of characters or character actors. Um, Michael Madsen's performance didn't particularly impress me. I mean, I don't think he did a bad job, but... There wasn't a lot there for that character. But Tim Roth. Uh, Tim Roth really shined in his Absolutely. role here. He did, he did a fantastic job. So. And uh, you can definitely see how that was actually written for Christoph Waltz. He, he wrote that character for Christoph Waltz. And you can see it. Yeah. Uh, but but Chris- Tim, yeah, Tim Roth nailed it. Yeah. Anyway, um... I mean, I think Christoph Watts would have put a different spin on the character, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't know that I would have necessarily even preferred him in the role. No, um, yeah, that's, absolutely. Which is crazy. I can't believe <laughs> I just said that. I preferred Tim Roth in a role to Christoph Waltz. What is going on? It was, uh, he was very entertaining. Yeah. Uh, the His character, uh, which he hams it up he's actually playing a character I think and I don't think that's a spoiler necessarily but he uh, it might be sorry uh, but he's the most lighthearted character all the way through yeah. to the very end he's the one that's having fun the whole time yeah um, but yeah anyways going on I just want to throw that out there yeah well uh, so one of the the for me the most the first striking thing about the film and I know this is also something we talked about, even though we are we're breaking our cardinal rule of not talking about the movie, um, was the score. Mm. Uh, and the opening shot is is really actually kind of a classic Western thing. Um, you get some big sweeping landscape shots, and then this slow descent of the camera uh, as it pans towards the the characters yeah. that are about to be on screen. But it is a long opening, a long credit roll, and I think it's Enzio Morricone. Yeah, I was, I, um, is that how you say his name? I, 
I mean, any of them, any of them work. I mean, um, does an unbelievable job with with the score. Yeah, like there's almost not enough of it. Like that <laughs> opening, right. that opening, uh, opening theme was so awesome. Um, just yeah, great, uh, great scoring for the film. Interesting note on that. So, um, listening to the slash film, uh, the review of, of the movie. Uh, so, he Inio, how do you say his name? Morricone. Morricone has done several um, compositions for Tarantino's film, but it was never original. It was always based on his prior stuff and other movies that Tarantino loved. Hmm. So, any this is the first original score that Quentin Tarantino has ever had. That's something. Yeah. I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. It's weird little trivia there. And it is amazing, though. Yeah. I mean, it... The, the, there's a scene where they're and it is it could easily be a throwaway scene but they're um, making a line because there's a blizzard from the stable to the haberdashery and from the haberdashery to the outhouse mm-hmm. so that they don't get lost in the snow and they can find them. and the music that is playing it's basically horror music mm-hmm. and it is so menacing and yep. you feel the, the cold yeah it, it that that is one of my favorite pieces of music this year was was from that scene. So yeah, the score is was fabulous. Cinematography again, what little was outside is still gorgeous, mm-hmm. uh, beautiful. Um, I feel like he went to a lot of work to shoot in seventy millimeter, and uh, not that it was wasted, but it's just interesting how little it was shot outside. I mean, it's gorgeous, but well, and the other thing is we watching this on a digital projector, we honestly had no idea right. what the difference was and I mean I've, I've read a couple articles talking about uh, being able to experience the film on a real authentic 70 millimeter projector and how they were able to appreciate what he did and that it was you know may, I mean maybe not in the grand scheme of things like it, it's not going to matter for most people but how it wasn't just a a ploy for him trying to be different for the sake of being different mm-hmm. it actually added something to the uh the aesthetic of the film so and that's something we'll never know yep sad for us it's like seeing gravity in 2d man. <laughs> it's not right. the same um so uh where else do we want to go with this without going into spoilers i don't know i mean i i feel like if you get over get past the idea don't go into this thinking that this is an action film that this is Really, anything like Tarantino's done recently, mm-hmm. I don't. I, I feel like the last two films he's done, he's done have been kind of period pieces or his take on period pieces. Mm-hmm. I would argue that this isn't a period piece. This is just happens to be set in a historical time period. Um, it, it's kind of like murder at a de- or murder at a dinner party. Yeah, set in eighteen fifty. Yeah, this this is a movie about a bunch of strangers in a room um, trying to figure out who. Is who and if anybody is is what they seem or isn't what they seem, uh, and the, the stakes are are high, and yeah. that I mean, if you go into the film expecting something like that, um, I don't see how you're going to be disappointed because it is really well executed. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I th- I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, so did I. I think um, 
you know, it's it's my favorite Tarantino film to this point. And, you know, I don't usually go back and revisit Tarantino films this quickly. Like I said, I, I saw it twice this weekend. I saw it once with you and then once with my grandfather. Yeah. Um, and I probably wouldn't have seen it if with without my grandfather. But seeing it a second time and um, knowing what was going to happen, uh, I enjoyed it just as much. Yeah. And looking for little clues along the way was fun. Mm-hmm. And there are clues. I mean, that's one thing. If you go back and watch this film, you can notice little clues. They're, they're very subtle, and uh, it's not it's not like it's a it's going to give anything too far away. But um, facial expressions, um, I would guess char- character positions on yes, set, um, yes. yeah, stuff like De- that. Definitely, it's fun. It's it, to me, it was almost like going and seeing a, a, a play. Yeah, uh, and, and watching the. You know, the first time you see a play, a lot of times, especially uh, a play that is a mystery, you are stuck on the characters that are talking and you're avoiding mm-hmm. other characters. But when you see it a second time, you're looking to see where the other characters are. And that's the way I would really um, view this on a second. If you go and see the second time, just try to keep that in mind. It's, and it's fun. Well, you made the point before uh, that Reservoir Dogs could really work as a stage play. Yes. And I I think that the exact same <laughs> is true about this yes. film. Yeah. Um, Man, that'd be a crazy stage play. <laughs> yeah, no, it would. Uh, I would. I would go see it. I would go see it too. definitely. Yeah. Um, so go go see Hateful Eight. See it in the theater. Um, it it's fun. It's like like I said. I thought it was funny. There's a lot of humor in it. Um, sometimes you laugh because you don't know what else to do. Um, but I I thoroughly enjoyed this film. Colin th- thoroughly enjoyed it. I would say go see it. Yeah. Uh, so, it, it doesn't feel like a three-hour film. No, it doesn't. It moves very quickly. It, uh, and, you know, I'm not always a, a proponent of going to see movies that aren't, like, visually spectacular in theaters, but this there's definitely something going to be added by the theatrical experience. Don't, don't wait. Don't wait to see it. Go see it. Please. Um, so I think it's going to do it, do it for non-spoilers, right? I think, yeah, I think let's, so. Let's hop into spoilers. Uh, so... If you don't want to hear spoilers for The Hateful Eight, stop listening now. What, honey? Wow. Are you kidding really? me? Really? You just ruin it every oh. time. Oh. I'll see you at home. Well, wait so a second. Rude. Now, how would you not know that that was taking place? All right, spoilers for The Hateful Eight. Yeah, and really, if you haven't seen it, just get the fuck out of here. Go yeah. go see the film. Don't do yeah. this to yourself. No, it's, it's pointless. To, it's such an experience to not know what's going on. Yeah. It really is. Go see it a second time if you want to be spoiled. Um, real quick, I I didn't want to dwell too much on this in, in non-spoiler section because I feel like it's a spoiler to talk about. Um, but there are two things that annoyed me about this film. One is Quentin Tarantino's voiceover in in the film, which he has to insert himself, of course. Yeah, yeah. He, he can't make a fucking chronological film, and he can't and keep thing, himself... Yeah. Even if he can't be in the camera, he has to have a, a presence as in... More than being outside the frame in some right. way. Like the uh, <laughs> the flashback was the other thing that you mentioned. I, I just don't think it served a purpose necessarily for the film, other than explaining why Channing Tatum, Channing Tatum was underneath the floorboards, which you don't really need the explanation. Well, it, you could have achieved it a different way, and you could have achieved it. A different you, way. It could have been an interrogation. I mean, yeah, you know, but I, I don't know, like. What is what is his deal? Like, is he just 
he has to do it at this point because it's his thing, or does he really think it's adding something I, to I, the film? I don't no. know. I, it's it's just the yeah his decision to take this. <sighs> it's almost like the most of the third act is this flashback. Yeah. Um, like we, you hit the climax in the film, and then it just drops the fucking floor off right. of you and takes you back in time and destroys all the tension they built, and it's fine. Like it, it doesn't impact my overall enjoyment of no. the film, but it's it's a questionable decision at best. It, it it's more confusing. Like that's where it left me is like, it was, and at this point in his career, it was kind of like, oh, okay, here's Quentin Tarantino being Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, um, as if you know shooting. Mexican Bob's head off wasn't Quentin Tarantino enough, you know, <laughs> or, I mean? or having a, like a long soliloquy about <laughs> for, gay fellatio, yeah, like, yeah, fellatio. yeah, about forced forced fellatio. I mean, yeah, I, like though that's Tarantino, like that 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 to me was that is fine. I will take that Tarantino, dude. Yeah, dude, your stamp is already everywhere. Like we get it. This is your film. You don't have to convince anybody. Yeah, you don't... <laughs> by not making it chronological. By, yeah. And the annoying part about the, the voiceover is... Initially, I didn't realize it was Tarantino. And I was like, this I, this voice sounds familiar. Like, yeah, I don't... kind of whiny, grating voice yeah. a little bit. And then at the minute that he said, fuck, I knew it was him. And I'm like, what? Why, yeah. Why is he doing this to me? <laughs> and the thing is, the voiceover is part of the flashback. And so it makes me think that he put the flashback in so he could have a voiceover. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, and I think that's a valid question. Or, well, the first time the voiceover happens is not the flashback, is when is Damagoo's got a secret. Yes, right. right. Um, and then and it goes into the flashback there. I, I don't even know how I felt about that part of the film. That, that's, that was stylistically was totally him, too. Yeah. Like, that actually reminded me of Kill Bill for some reason. No, um, I agree with that. Like, wow, this was happening. You yeah. Know? You have a narrator explaining instead of showing... And you know he's a good enough filmmaker to show you. Yeah, it's, and and, it's, and that's the thing. is So what he does is he breaks these cardinal rules of filmmaking. And, you know, I'm not a filmmaker, but I understand that mm. you never tell the audience when you can show them. Yeah. Um, and he does that, and you... We know it's on purpose. Like, yeah. so is he saying these things can work, or is he saying I can still make a really like popular and financially successful film without following your rules? What, what is he saying? Why does he have to do this? What is what is going on? I, I would love, to, and I don't think honestly anybody who has the opportunity to interview him is not gonna have the balls to ask him that. I don't think. No. But I would love to. Yeah. Like just, and not even to you know. To come, to come out of it. doesn't have to be antagonistic. Yeah, like just, just curiosity. Just why? Why yeah. Why do you make these decisions when you clearly don't have to? You're clearly a skilled filmmaker. You make art that is um, different than... It's already different than anything anybody else is doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just... I definitely don't... It, it doesn't affect my viewing on the film that, that much, but it is one of those things that constantly annoys me about his filmmaking. And it just seems to get progressively worse. It, well, and take, taking a step back, this is his most, besides Jackie Brown, yeah. this is his most linear film. Absolutely. Um, 
his his most again aside from Jacket Down Brown his most traditional narrative I, I, I don't know how you I mean he you get through a lot of the film and it's told in a conventional yes. way yeah. um, you go a long ways before you get narration and then you go even further before you get the flashback inevitable chronological jump yeah um which, by the way, I think I don't know. Did I turn to you in the theater and say he just couldn't help himself? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I couldn't remember if it was during or afterwards, but definitely that was the first thing I thought when I saw it. Is yeah, I, I, knew I, it. I thought we were going to get all the way through. He just couldn't help himself. <laughs> <laughs> Son of a bitch. Um, but the, those are to me the only negatives really of the film. Um, let's talk a little bit about Goggins and J- Jackson's performance together. And how they seem like adversaries, and yet they turn into allies. Um, I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was an absolute brilliant twist. That I guess it's not even necessarily considered a twist by many, mm-hmm. uh, but it, they are. So it, Jackson is in control, and yes. he has to put his trust in the Goggins. Mm-hmm. And the reason I feel. And this interesting is because, and you know, I've seen people debate. Well, he he's a sheriff. He thinks he's going to pull. I don't think that really has anything to do with it. No. I think oh, I no. think it solely is based on he knows who that's this person is. Yes, he knows he can recognize Chris Mannix's character, and that's why he can trust him. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with him viewing him as a law-abiding uh, enforcer of law, or however you you want to you want to skew it. I, to me, is. Everybody else he has questions about. He mm-hmm. knows that he can trust Chris Mannix because he knows who he is. What? Well, so I think if, if to, to insert insert ourselves into the character and what's going on in the film, he is holding up three people, four people, mm-hmm. and it's only a matter of time before he loses control of the situation again. And there is enough evidence that he can trust Chris that he takes that leap. It doesn't have anything to do with him maybe being a law enforcement has to do with him uh, not being in minis when they arrived. Yeah. Um, and it has to do with, I think, uh, Ruth's um, kind of understanding of who and what this person mm-hmm. was and with the events of the haberdashery with him Great. almost drinking the coffee um, I think those. I think those are the fact. I don't think it has anything to do with the even the strength of right. Chris's character. I think. I think uh, the major takes a gamble in whether or not um, handing him the gun is going to, uh, you know, result in something worse for him. But yeah. At the very least, I think he figures. Well, I can hand this boy a gun, make him feel empowered yeah. by trusting him and telling him I trust him, and bringing him out to the inside. And, you know, if not, I'm, I'm screwed anyway. Yeah, right. So, yeah. Um, and really, to me, um, Walter Goggins' character has the, the best arc in the film. It's really the only arc in the film. Um, like I said, when he shows up, to me, he was kind of fumbling and confused and um, not really sure of himself. And as the film grows, you see him kind of grow into somebody who uh, is... Sure of himself. Uh, I love when he accuses um, Joe Gage, played by Michael Madsen, as the one who poisoned the coffee. Mm -hmm. And he's like, 
to me, it's you. You're the ugliest motherfucker. It's you. <laughs> yeah. And then when he admits to it, he goes, I knew it. Yeah. I knew it was you. Like, he, that just like instilled confidence in him and reassurance. And then by the end of the film, um, <laughs> really, none of these people are very likable. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, so the closest we come to likable are the, the, <laughs> the slow hangman bounty hunter who is constantly beating this woman mm. mercilessly, who yeah. is, I, I would say, yeah, it, may, maybe, not, I, I don't know if I'll say the like, most likable, but he's likable. Samuel L's character is so, yeah. the major's likable. And yeah, this, uh, this, um, like, I, I forget the word, but, um, <laughs> live on Confederacy, uh, Marauder. Yeah. Marauder, Marauder General's son, yeah. who's still believes in the good fight and, uh, um, <laughs> the most likable characters. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the way that the, the Samuel L. and Goggins relationship, um, expands to the end to where they're literally dying on a bed together, but yet they still have to hang Jennifer Jason Lee. That, mm-hmm. that, I mean, and then <laughs> the reading of the Lincoln letter was a perfect cap on it. Uh, yeah, that was. I, I don't really, like, this is, I don't really know. I don't really know exactly what Samuel L. Jackson's character uh, would, I don't, I'm not sure what Tarantino was really saying with the Samuel L. Jackson character. Um, there's been a lot of talk about this being a race relations movie and white people being able to trust black people and black people being able to trust white people and um, knowing your knowing your real friends from your enemies. And I don't want to sound dumb, but I really didn't get a lot of that out of this film. <clears throat> as far as social commentary goes, I, I mean... I can see it a little bit. Uh, Samuel Wells has, has the line in the movie, the only time a black man feels safe is when the white man is unarmed. Yeah. Or disarmed. Disarmed, yeah. Um, but other than that, I didn't I didn't really feel that. So am I, did you feel it? I mean... No. Well, all right. So going back a step, I never felt like Chris's character was bumbling um, or, or not smart, um, or at least any dumber than he's revealed to be by the end of the film. I think he's always just kind of test, testing the waters, really, okay. is what it seems like. And there's evidence of that. I think he's... And... Clearly he's he has, like, been born and raised to be racist, but I think he's, he's curious about the major. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point, he's, so he sits down next to him at the dinner table. But their initial meeting... He, he's testing him. Uh, and he might sound stupid or blathering on, but he continually pushes the limits trying to raise the major's ire until he kind of figures out <laughs> what he can get away with, and mm-hmm. then he, he drops it. So I don't know. I, you know. Clearly he's not the one in charge of the situation, but he's... I think he... Uh, his character is... Stay, again, stayed pretty consistent for me. He's he's mouthy, and that is to kind of he uses that to his advantage. Uh, but he, I don't think he um, prejudged Samuel L's character. I think he was wary of him. 
um, and understanding that he he was more capable in a lot of ways than most of the other people they were in the room with. So, well, do you think that that maybe the social commentary right there? But him? yeah, moving back, moving back to the social commentary, I don't. No, I mean, not not. I don't see that because I don't see this as a realistic representation of what a a Confederate marauder born racist meeting you, you know it this is there's too much fiction here yeah. and then as far as the the message at the end it's not like they spend an extended time kind of bonding and problem solving and beginning to trust one another it's all they're left with in hopes of survival is trusting one another because mm-hmm. they're the only two that can trust one another. Um, and then they realize they're in too far and they, uh, <laughs> you know, take, take revenge together as the last act of dying men. I, you know, I, I, I don't see social commentary there. there. I mean, I don't see any big change in the character he wrote really. Um, I think it reveals what, kind of saw in him all along, which is that he puts on a racist front, he presses buttons, but he's not necessarily blindly hateful. Um, and that it's just kind of part of part of the face he showed, his character shows to the world. Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't really have a, a way of coming down on this at all. Um, I didn't initially feel um, that it, the film was saying anything super um, revelatory, like it was revealing some kind of truth about whites and blacks, um, the way that people have kind of written about it. I, I definitely think if I watched it a third time, I would try to maybe think of it along those lines a little more just to see if I missed something. But I, to me, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not quite sure that if, if, if there's something that is, is there, it's not obvious put it that way and I'm not sure where um, Tarantino comes off as saying that this um, is because what he said is you know I was writing this movie long before the Black Lives Movement happened and he feels like that that this would coincide with it now which I don't I don't I don't really get that I mean maybe I'm wrong hey write us and tell us that we, we missed something but I think that might be him just being a little pretentious <sighs> I mean, other than Samuel L.'s character being the baddest motherfucker on in the haberdashery. Yeah. Um, on the mountain, really. On the mountain. Yeah, well, yeah, on the mountain. That's fair. Uh, and the smartest person in this room. Well, I, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's more than, there's more than the relationship between these two characters. I, right. I don't really know what the... And really the story isn't necessarily even about... Uh, the race relations, that's just kind of a second-tier plot device. Um, it's really about Jennifer Jason Lee's brother trying to free her. Yeah. Um, and a white woman is chained to a white man the entire time. So I don't really know what was being said there. I do know that uh, not, all f- not, not all art has to say something to be enjoyable. Well, it... Not only that, but it doesn't always have to be the artist's overt intention 
right. to yeah. have a specific underlying message. It could be something thematic or, you know, something unintentional. It that I I didn't take away anything like that in the film, and I'm not really sure. I'd be interested to read articles and For see sure. how and where they found this interpretation because yeah. other than maybe saying, look, look, white people, this black person is a war hero and smarter than you and deadlier than you, I, you know. And, re- <laughs> and really um, more worthy yeah. than you. Um, so one other thing I want to touch on and then we can talk about whatever you want, want to talk about in, in this extremely long podcast mm-hmm. is Jennifer uh, Lawrence was slated to play Jennifer Jason Lee's character. Um, Tarantino had spoke about writing this role specifically for her. Um, unfortunately, uh, David O. Russell stand stroke for joy, yeah. which I saw. She gives a great performance, but uh, he, I guess, um, has spoken since then as saying um, perhaps Kill Bill 3 would be his next film with Jason with Jennifer Lawrence um, possibly being in that. Um, what do you think about Jennifer Lawrence and Quentin Tarantino? He, he basically said that she's the best actor working and he wants to spend some time with her, is basically what he put it. I think he's a creepy old dude. Yeah. Um, with, with a giant head. Uh, uh, but could you have seen her playing this role? I, I don't know. Um, I mean... She's talented enough. She can really probably do whatever at this point. But there's a lot of nonverbal acting that goes on. I would say the best acting by Jennifer Jason Lee is done because a lot of her voice acting was I found annoying. I mean, a lot of people have been praising her, and she's going to get nominated, I guess, for an Oscar for this role. And I don't really see it. Yeah, I, I mean, the the best moments were the the subtle for her character. Yes. The smiling, um, the winking, yeah. the scoffing, the <laughs> that's, yeah. that, that's like when she did that I was loud. Yeah, and I think I think what, where I really enjoyed her was uh, with her interactions with John Ruth's character. And when he's yeah. no longer in the picture, you lose the chemistry of their relationship, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and her character becomes more flat. And her accent was very, very bad. I didn't think that it was very convincing Southern accent or whatever. She, Chris, like that was just grating to me, honestly. Yeah, so that didn't. Usually, that stuff bothers me. I don't. I didn't really find as much. I found a. I had a problem with Channing Tatum's horrible Creole murder accent. Oh, well, he that he was he was practicing for Gambit. Oh my! Don't even say that. <laughs> Please don't I, be serious. Right I, I lo- I, I'm not being serious, okay. but I mean... He, I, I will just... I will go... Well, you realize way. he's the favorite to play Gambit right now. He, he's... I love just <laughs> squashing all of Colin's I, I can't be true. It because true. he literally embodies nothing important about that character. Um, I, I will show you afterwards where oh, he is. Oh, God. Oh, God, why? Um, but no, he... Yeah, I, I saw, I've seen people praising his performance, too, which was very just... <laughs> I mean, look, the fact of the matter is that people wrote glowing reviews for the latest James Bond film. That's true. Um, so really, 
It's true. There are lots of people who say a lot of things about movies who are either delusional or getting paid a lot to have that opinion or are just fucking stupid, uh, to be perfectly <laughs> blunt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry for getting off track. Yeah. Anyways, any, anything else you want to you wanna say? Spoilers? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, one thing I, I think is fair to mention is do you th- so do you think the scene with uh, uh, Samuel L. Goading Bruce Dern into picking up the gun by dis- describing the torture and rape of his son, <laughs> you think that was over the top? Do I think it was over the top? Um, well, cl- okay, clearly it was over the top. Yeah. Do you think it was over the top to the extent that it detracted from the mood of the film? Um, uh, no, I... Uh, seeing it on a second viewing, yeah. um, I appreciated that scene a little bit more. Okay. Um, I, at first, it does kind of take you out of the of the film because it's. Well, I guess that is a concern of flashback, but I mean, really, it's well. Be, see, the I I thought the implications were you you're not supposed to know if it's true or not. You're that's not and that's what really happens, so. and that's what I think. And I I don't. And I the thing is, I don't think that it really happened. No. Um, I think the whole purpose of showing it is because, you know, Samuel Jackson's character says you're getting pictures in your head now. Yeah. Well, he's he's uh, narrating it. Yeah. yeah. So wants Bruce Stern to picture. Yeah. So yeah. I, the question is, if he doesn't have the visual, is it as, um, does it strike the same feeling? Would you react the same way? Well, I, I guess the... What I'm getting at is, it was rape necessary? Was like sexual yeah. violence necessary to push? Was that was that really what pushed this old Confederate general over the edge? And not it's, just that his and it's really not because he doesn't draw right then. Yeah, he draws later on when he says, um, "Does it bother you that uh, I not only um, made him do these things, but the fact that." I murdered him because he was your son. Yeah. That's when he pulls the gun. Is yeah. He says, I did these things because he was your son. Mm-hmm. Uh, Basically, it's your fault. Yeah. The, 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 his, the, the mistake he made was telling me who he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it, it, it didn't have to be in there. Um, I kind of wish it... Like, honestly, when I was watching with my grandfather, that was the scene that I was most dreading yeah, to you're... come up. And I was like, oh, God. And it takes a long time. Yeah. Like that. Watch. <laughs> that scene lasted forever. And uh, luckily, the, the theater was laughing when he's walking through the snow naked and his wiener's swinging back and forth. Yeah. So everybody kind of laughed at that because it's so off-putting that kind of loosened the mood. But um, I would... I w- Honestly, I would have liked to have not had that in the film, but I don't think it detracts too much. Because, honestly, after that point, things start picking up very quickly. That's the moment uh, where things start moving very rapidly. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I guess. I mean... Did you feel that it, was, it shouldn't have been in the film? I, mean, does it... I don't... So... I don't know if it was necessary... Um, but then again, it's not my not my film. But uh, it was it was a little off putting 
to say the least. Um, and I, you know, it's not like I didn't understand what the intended effect mm -hmm. was. Uh, yeah, it, it seemed like uh, like maybe a little much, but then again, you know, who am I to? I doubt that, that uh, you or I, if we ever wrote a film, would probably write something as graphic than that. I mean, um, it. And it, it, I don't know, it just, it did seem a little out of place for that film, too. It, you know, I don't know. Um, anything else about Hateful Eight you want to speak about? No, uh, I think we've pretty, pretty neatly covered it. Um, yeah. Um, great film, we both agree you should see it. Um, next week, I think we're going to be reviewing The Revenant. Damn well better. Looks like it. Yeah. Pretty excited, um for that film um, finally coming to good old Cincinnati USA so I can't wait to tell you how good it is in spite of Leo's oh. massively overrated performance oh. <laughs> um, will, he, will he win an Oscar I can't wait to we'll say see. Tom Hardy was great <laughs> <laughs> send the hate mail to midnightfilmreview at gmail.com and yeah. we will read it uh, so I think that's gonna do it right yeah yeah, no, write in and tell me why Leo's not overrated, yeah. and I will laugh at you and tell you why you're wrong. But uh, yeah, other than that, I really hope we get to see The Revenant for next week. Um, and uh, if not, you know, there's always the big short, which I've actually heard some really good things about. So Yeah, both we'll, are on my list of see. We'll bring sure. you something theatrical and relevant and uh, make, make you listen to us talk about it again. And, you know, like uh, Christian said, we're really smart. I don't think he said that. No. <laughs> All right. Oh, oh, yeah, and write us more emails. Two yeah. emails this week. It's a, it is just a breakthrough moment for us. This is our uh, this is the episode that puts us over the top. Mm -hmm. Lucky number 13. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're 11 if you're really coming. <laughs> All right, thank you. Bye. But that's not for you. You've been looking all around for years For someone to tell your troubles to Come and sit with me and talk a while Let me see your pretty little smile Put your troubles in a little pile And I will sort them out for you I fall in love with you I think I'm